Welcome to Entrust Engage, an open forum for the most innovative leaders in security technology. I'm Samantha Maybe, and I'm your host. On today's episode, we're going to continue our conversations around quantum computing and a post-quantum world, but look at it through a bit more of a scientific lens. I'm joined by the perfect person to help do this, award-winning quantum physicist and CEO of New Quantum, Dr. Carmen Pelotheos Berakiro. Welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Hi, Samantha. Thanks. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. So obviously a lot about what we're talking about is uh, quantum computing. So to get started, I'd love to get a high-level feel for the road to quantum computers that has happened so far. Um, believing that it starts with quantum theory, then that being applied to quantum technologies, one of which, of course, is quantum computers. Is that the right linkage of things? Sure, yeah. So I guess that the, the history of quantum computing goes back to around the 80s when people started to look at how to apply quantum theory to, to computing. Quantum theory uh, appeared at the beginning of the, of the century. And throughout the 80s, there were some ideas thrown around. In the 90s, we had Feynman proposing that you could use a quantum system to simulate a quantum system. And then we had uh, the first quantum algorithms were developed, like Shor's algorithm, who, which could actually use, um, harness this quantum information principles to, to really provide an exponential speed up on, on a certain calculation. In this case, factorization problem, which can be used to, to break things like RSA encryption. Um, and from, from then on, obviously theorists kept uh, advancing massively, but also experimental physicists started started to find physical systems, uh, so new hardware in which you could encode this quantum information and and use it for computation. And that is, so we're still finding the best ways to, to do this. So from the 90s on, there have been more than, you know, more than seven or so physical systems like ions or atoms or photons uh, in which we can encode quantum information and, and carry out quantum computations. And this has resulted in um, what we have today, which is this uh, industrial race, like a space race of different kinds of hardware approaches. And it's, it's all kind of exponentially accelerating. So throughout the kind of early 2000s um, and, and, and kind of 2010, so on, it was still quantum computing was still largely an academic endeavor. Mm -hmm. And then throughout the past seven, eight years, the leaders, the pioneers, the professors that, that kind of pioneered these first experiments on quantum hardware basically started to, to move into industry and started to create these startups. In 2015, we started to see these, these first startups and, and more investment coming in. Um, and it's all been accelerating to the point that um, in 2021, there's been over 3 billion invested into quantum computing, uh, which is I think double or triple what was invested the previous re the previous year, and we've seen the the first kind of large exits of these companies, and we've seen obviously some some big results and advancements like 2019 Google's result uh, where they where they claimed um, quantum supremacy or quantum advantage. So it's it's been a a relatively long history with with a lot of acceleration in the past few years. 
Yeah, no kidding. And with that investment, I'd love the term. uh, It's like the new space race because it's exactly (laughs) what it sounds like it is. Um, So, of course, being a digital security company, we talk about um, when we talk about quantum and quantum computing, we talk about the threat timeline. So specifically the timing of the quantum threat to public key cybersecurity and general consensus is that that's approximately 10 years away, give or take. So that said, a lot of reports have the quote when there will be a quantum computer powerful enough to break through traditional algorithms. So one that's powerful enough, that sort of suggests that quantum computers already exist today. Can you explain the current state of quantum computers? Yeah, sure. So I'd say at the moment there's five leading approaches. Two of them, ions and superconducting, the kind of oldest technologies, the most well-understood higher TLRL technologies that, that have the backing of, of the largest the largest companies like IBM, Google, and now the large uh, newcomers like like IonQ or or Honeywell, and those those technologies are the ones that we are starting to see on on the cloud that we can access uh, via the cloud today. The numbers of qubits are are small, but nevertheless, it's it's allowing people to to you know to use and and, and learn and, and and train themselves. Um, there's the newer approaches uh, like spins in silicon and photonics, which are meant to be more scalable. So they are meant to kind of more easily deliver bigger machines, but they're also 10 to 20 years behind uh, in the kind of in the roadmap. And so it's it's kind of more uncertain when we'll see those those technologies deliver. And then there's we've got uh, neutral atoms, uh, which is sits kind of in the middle um, and has seen a lot of a lot of popularity this year with with several um, startups raising tens or hundreds of millions. Um, so at the moment, the state the state of play is um, companies that can that claim anywhere between you know twenty and and a hundred or one hundred and twenty qubits. Uh, some of them being able to put a few of them available on the cloud. And roadmaps that roadmaps for the higher TRL technologies that take us to about a thousand qubits, and less kind of well published publicized uh, roadmaps of the newer technologies that that are supposed to take us beyond a thousand qubits, but in a more uncertain timeline. Okay, so they definitely exist today in some sense, and of course, you know, you mentioned. Google, of course, claiming quantum supremacy in 2019. So I guess I want to ask, um, what is quantum supremacy? And when they claimed it, did they achieve it? <laughs> yeah. Quantum supremacy or um, quantum advantage, as I prefer to call it, was was a, a, a term coined a few years ago that is, is meant to say it's, it's a moment where a, compu- a quantum computer can solve a problem that is infeasible for a classical computer. So when Google claimed quantum supremacy in 2019, um, they they kind of did a calculation of how long the same problem would take for the largest supercomputer on Earth. Um, and it was kind of, it was very, very, you know, many thousands of years. After that, there was, there was a few publications that said that actually 
you know, if, if you look at, uh, at a way that a classical computer could have solved that problem more efficiently, it wouldn't take so long. Mm-hmm. In any case, I think the, the, the thing to understand is that that problem that was being solved, you know, very fast by a quantum computer and, and very slowly by a classical computer was a problem that had that has absolutely no interest in the real world. You, you know, there ha- it has no application. It's just a made up problem. It's a calculation that a quantum computer is able to do faster. So I think people are really moving towards, at least in the kind of industrial landscape, people are moving moving towards the aim being a commercially useful problem. Yeah, applying it to something real. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, okay. Well, Um, How far away from that are we? Um, I'm afraid it's, again, another billion dollar question. Yeah, of course. Well, you know, considering the amount of investment that is going into building a quantum computer right now, and even, you know, Google saying they've achieved quantum supremacy, that was 2019. So obviously a few years away. Does that mean anything in terms of the timeline being realized? Like when, you know, we hear the general consensus is 10 years away, but the sup- quantum supremacy, you know, was achieved in 2019. Does that mean the timeline has been accelerated or was this just one milestone along the way? It's it's a difficult one. So, again, the timeline to, to do what? Um, so we have some some roadmaps, say, take IBM's roadmap takes us to a thousand qubits by I think 2025 or something like that. It's difficult to 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 say where a thousand qubits, you know, how useful a thousand qubits are going to be. The problem that that is uh, kind of plaguing the industry, there's there's essentially two problems. It's hard to scale these machines. It's hard to make them bigger. It's a very, very hard problem to go from 10 qubits to 11 qubits to 12 qubits. And and that's why we see such slow progress. And then the other problem is that there's a lot of errors in the processors. And so people are are proposing error correction schemes that are much, much more complicated and complex than classical error correction schemes, which means that it takes up many physical qubits to kind of encode one logical qubit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in in some of these machines, even if you manage to create one that is a, a, a thousand qubit machine, physical qubit machine, you you have to take into account how, how, how many of those qubits you're using for error correction and the ratios are, the ratios are really large. Mm-hmm. And so maybe you only get a few logical qubits to actually perform reliable computations with. And so there's this big kind of debate in the in the industry where people talk about two largely two regimes so the kind of near term you know sub you know kind of 5 to 10 years away nisc regi- regime which is a noisy intermediate intermediate scale uh, quantum computer which is you know around the thousands and then there's this other regime which is kind of beyond 1 million qubits and so some people really think that because of error correction needs, we'll really only see the use of computers beyond one million qubits. Mm-hmm. And then there's the other half of the community that really thinks that the NISC era will really produce a lot of um, commercial value. So 
You sort of mentioned, again, you're talking about, uh, you know, maybe the problem that the Google computer solved, maybe not being so useful. And you've talked about some commercial applications. So, you know, we've talked about the threats associated with post-quantum, but I'm hoping you can kind of walk us through the opposite and maybe, you know, we can have a look at some of the opportunities. There's so much, there's so much, so many opportunities that um, eventually quantum computers will open up. So the, the real kind of um, you know, why we're in this field is not really to accelerate current computing, it's really to kind of be able to crack intractable, pro- you know, problems that are just not uh, solvable at the moment. So opening up completely new applications, completely new markets, completely new industry, That that's that's like the real promise of quantum computing. And in that category is things like uh, material and drug design, right? Mm-hmm. So we being able to simulate, say, dr- drugs. So, for example, to be able to design drugs very um, with very very high accuracy or materials, and that has obviously a lot of implications for healthcare, but also for things like climate change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then um, there's there's also kind of the the more near term applications that people talk about um, and. And they're mostly to do with optimization, so finance por- portfolio optimization, some acceleration or improvement of, of some machine learning algorithms, and also kind of scientific computation. So sim- simulating, mm-hmm. simulating quantum systems, simulating um, uh, physical systems. So those are the the, the ones that people uh, are targeting as a more near-term application of quantum computing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard healthcare mentioned a lot, which of course makes sense. There's, you know, a lot to uncover there. Um, I like the climate change angle. That's interesting. And of course, you know, financial services being, I guess, a low-hanging fruit. So another topic I'd like to touch on is just some material I came across on quantum random number generator, which, as I understand, is being developed to encrypt things online. Uh, it's also said that the quantum world is the only place you can genuinely create a random number. So I'm curious first about the quantum random number generator, but then how does it differ from entropy in cryptography as we know it today? Yeah, so g- good question. There's been a lot of uh, talk and debate around quantum random number generators. Um, so a quantum random number generator uses um, the measurement of a quantum system and the, the unpredictability of that of the outcome of that measurement mm-hmm. to generate random numbers or to generate entropy. Um, this comes from one of the kind of the main propositions of quantum theory, which is that the outcome of a measurement is completely random, completely unpredictable. Even if you you can you can perform you know a million me- measurements and you will get a distribution of outcomes, but each individual outcome is completely random. So people um, over the past, I guess, um, decade or so, companies have, have uh, and, and academic groups have proposed to use this as a, as a source of, of random numbers for, for cryptography. The, the difference with classically generated en- entropy is, well, that in, in classical classical mechanics, um, everything is predictable. You know, strictly speaking, you could, if you had a, you know, a, a lot of computing power 
and you knew exactly how your system works, you could predict the outcome of a, of a classical random number generator. Now, in, in real in the real world, that is, you know, verging on impossible because mm-hmm. you would um, a perfect model of your system and um, and you'd need a lot of computational power. Plus, obviously, the world of cryptography has uh, developed ways in which you can kind of, um, you know, you, you apply certain mathematical tools on top of the outcomes of the physical random number generators to make that even more like, impossible to to crack essentially. So there's this, you know, that there's an ongoing, I guess, debate of what do quantum random number generators add to random number generators? And lately there have been a few companies that are managing to achieve quantum random number generation rates that are really, really high. So this kind of starts being useful for applications, say, like IoT or 5G. And and so this maybe starts to become something that is useful, not not necessarily because of its quantum nature, yeah, uh, but more because of the performance. So we're seeing a lot of activity, obviously, in IoT and 5G. So is this something that, is it being tested right now um, for those spaces or is it actually being used? It's not really been widely adopted yet. So I would say it's still you know, it's still at the beginning of kind of... In its infancy. <laughs> yeah. So th- there are there are robust products out there, but I think it's it's difficult to, uh, you know, to insert a new product into a... to do with cryptography and, and cybersecurity, right? Yeah. So I think yeah. it might, you know, it, it will take a little while to, to get through the, the regulations, but also to really find that perfect uh, use case product use case fit, I think. Well, even IoT and 5G are emerging, right? So I can imagine coupling the two together. Um, yeah, that's just a, a lot of new <laughs> in those spaces. Would you be able to provide a bit of an overview on uh, quantum computing as a service and what quantum internet are and how they're linked to quantum computing? So I saw them referred to as sort of parallel networks. Will they follow quantum computing or are they something different that's sort of happening in parallel? So they're quite different things. Um, so quantum computing as a service and the quantum internet are are yeah, very, very different things. So mm-hmm. start with quantum computing as a service. So that is simply being able to access quantum computers via the cloud. So AWS, Amazon Bracket, hosts, I think it's now maybe five quantum computers and and one can add, one can buy time on them via the cloud and and run algorithms apparently there there's a big there's a big queue and and there's three kinds of machines already online at the moment with very you know, with you know maybe 5 to 11 qubits um so generally so the, these machine, machines are not in a data center right that we're not there yet by no means these machines are in the labs of these companies with a lot of people around taking care of them and it it will take a while for for them to be able to survive in a in a in a in a data center alone but in general there is i guess a view that one of the main ways in which people will be able to access quantum computers will be via the cloud rather than on on the premises of of say large companies but that is i guess yet to be seen so before, if you don't mind, I'd just love to jump in. And you said that there are some people who are accessing it now and there's a queue to access it. 
who what kind of people or organizations are accessing it now do you know and for what purpose yeah no great question so it's a, it's a mix of academics academics that uh research say quantum algorithms and um and research kind of different different parts the quantum information theory or are trying to develop say software for quantum computers and algorithms are and use cases for quantum computers and then there's the kind of R&D departments of large companies of, of industry that are kind of getting themselves used to using quantum computers and training themselves and getting, you know, starting to, to form teams within their organizations that are able to understand and use quantum computers and, you know, using a, a small quantum computer is just a way to to get that going. And then quantum quantum companies, so quantum software and quantum algorithm companies themselves uh, would use them as well. So there's a there's a bit of a mix. So yeah, I didn't want to interrupt you. We're, I think you were going to go to quantum internet next. <laughs> yeah. Um. So the quantum internet. So one of the main one of the main resources, computational resources of quantum computers, is this thing called entanglement, which is this kind of inextricable link between different qubits. So in a completely different way as current classical bits, they're all independent from each other. In quantum, they're all kind of intimately connected, right? And so that is that is one of the things that makes that al- that allows quantum computing to be so powerful. And this usually happens inside a computer. The quantum internet is essentially a network that distributes this entanglement between distant places and can kind of carry quantum information between distant points using photons because light is the only thing that we know that can carry quantum information over large distances. So this is a very kind of still very much in the realm of academia and it's kind of been spearheaded by University of Delft and it's it's still kind of unknown what the what the commercial application of the quantum internet will be. But if we kind of take a step back from talking about long distance networking and kind of talk about short distance networking, then that is where New Quantum, my company, uh, sees a very, very big opportunity, which is using photons, using light to share entanglement between distant but not, not too distant things. So, for example, between quantum computing modules. So I, I spoke uh, earlier about how one of the main limitations of quantum computers is that it's very difficult to make them bigger and bigger, right? So another thing that you could do instead of making them bigger and bigger is that you could connect them together, right? Connect smaller modules together. So the only way to do this is using light, you know, in a completely analogous way as classical computers, you know, have a networking backbone that allows large computers to exist, supercomputers to exist, this is what New Quantum is proposing for quantum. So what this means is kind of making these computers emit photons that carry some of that quantum information and via those photons being able to extend the entanglement between different computing modules so that one could carry out multi-core quantum computation and like that help on the roadmap to scale. Very interesting. Yeah. So I guess you said you don't know the commercial application of it just yet. So it's not like we'll be on the quantum internet in 10 years, but I guess it's it's kind of, it's a different realm, right? So the, the quantum internet talks about networks over hundreds of kilometers, right? And this is what we don't really know what the, what the application will be. And this will be possible only in 
about a decade, right? Yeah. But yeah. we do see a really, really big commercial obligation and opportunity in short distance networking between quantum computers, which is not, it's kind of the same, it's based on the same science, but it's not uh, usually categorized as the quantum internet because it's short, short distance. All right. Well, I believe we have uh, reached our time for today. So thank you so much. That was a fascinating conversation. <laughs> I hope it was just as fascinating for <laughs> listeners. And it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. So I'd like to thank you so much again for taking the time and, and having this conversation. Thank you. Absolutely. No, it's been, it's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Yeah, no problem. So that's it for today's podcast. Keep up with new episodes by following us on LinkedIn and Twitter using the links in the episode description. Thanks for listening to Entrust Engage. Engage.